If you can, please um, open your copies of God's Word in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, verse, uh, chapter 9, uh, verses 18 to chapter 10, verse 1, part A. So that is 1 Samuel, chapter 9, verses 18 to chapter 10, verse 1, A. And as I told you, this is like a big uh, narrative that goes together. And we could um, just, I couldn't just talk all everything in one sermon because we will be reading lots of text and then uh, explaining everything. So we have, I have decided to um, divide it in three or four parts uh, because this whole narrative goes until uh, chapter 11. Now remember, there are three characters uh, in the book of Samuel. Samuel himself, Saul, and then David. And we have been introduced to Saul already. And I hope you remember what we have seen so far from him. Because the story that we uh, heard last week continues here this morning. And the characteristics that we saw about Saul last week are characteristics that we are going to face here once again. Uh, his lack of preparation, his lack of resources, his, not, uh, his lack of knowledge of the prophet, all of those things are still here in place. So with that in mind, then, please stand to hear the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant uh, word. This is indeed God's word. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is in your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answer, Am I not a Benjaminite? From the, la from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of the house uh, of those, excuse me, who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof. Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you, anointed you to be the prince over his people, Israel? 
and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You may be seated. Now, dear congregation of the Lord, have you, have you ever experienced uh, the privilege of being upgraded? Like uh, when, when you are flying economic, right? And suddenly the lady at the counter informs that all the passengers in that flight have been overbooked and that some passengers will be called to the front desk. And you already know what goes in your mind, right? You start sweating. And as they start calling people and seeing their angry faces and, and, and their expressions, you start hoping and praying that, please, 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 I may not be the, same, the next one whom they are calling. When sadly, the moment comes when you hear your name and you drag your feet to the front desk. But just as you are preparing your angry face, and just as you are mentally rehearsing all of the things that you are going to say to the lady in the front desk, she greets you with a, congratulations, you have been upgraded to first class for free. And so you board first, you're given a glass of wine at the, at the entrance, a very good meal, and even a hot towel to clean your hands, because of course, everything is first class. Well, there is something similar in our text this morning. Today, this morning, we are going to see Saul anointed as a king. He is getting an upgrade, so to speak. And we will see this theme in three parts. And excuse me, but have it, two parts. Uh, first, a special meal with the prophet. And second, a secret conversation with the prophet. So first, a special meal with the prophet. And second, a secret conversation with the prophet. The first point is going to be longer than the second. Uh, you've been warned. Uh, so let's see the first part, the special meal with the prophet. Now, as I said before, last week we saw how uh, the Lord God had been preparing uh, every single detail to Saul meet Samuel. But now I want you to listen how this story continues and what is happening next, because it's really embarrassing for, for Saul. Uh, verse 19, 18 and 19. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, I am the seer. And here's what I want you to notice, congregation. Saul doesn't know who Samuel is, even though he's talking to him face to face with him. Now, maybe you will come back to me and say, Well, Christian, in those days, there was no cameras, no smartphones, no newspapers, no social media. So Saul doesn't know how the prophet looks like. And that may ring true if, he, if this would be the only instance in which we hear about Saul's ignorance. But let me remind you that previously it was Saul's servant, not Saul himself, who knew about the reputation of the prophet and who knew even where he lived. Saul didn't know any of that. And that adds to the picture that we have already from Saul. See, uh, the fact is that Saul doesn't know Samuel, not only physically, but also he doesn't know him at all. And that's kind of weird because Samuel has been a judge over Israel for the last 30 years and a very famous one. He's a public 
uh, a persona, a famous person. How come he doesn't know him? And here's the thing. The text is already showing us an alienated, moved away figure in Saul himself. He's alienated from God and he's alienated from his works among his people through the prophet Samuel. And that, that cannot be good. The question is, though, will that continue? Will that alienation continue? And we will see that the answer to that question will unfold in the book of Samuel as we continue searching in the scriptures. But in the meantime, we need to remember that Saul is showing us a very important truth, a truth that many times we forgive. We tend to say that Vox Populi is Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. And yet we are seeing here that that is not truth. The text is already showing us that Israel's desire was not a good one once again. So, so we need to learn the lesson, boys and girls. Not everything that your friends do is to be done. Not everything that your friends like should be liked by you. And whatever the masses put their hopes in, certainly, and most often than not, should be avoided. Now let's continue with verses 19b and 20. Go up before me, said Samuel, to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Now, two things I want you to notice here. First, this is a great privilege. Saul is given a great privilege from Samuel. This, boys and girls, is like you being invited to the house of the president and you are walking with him as if you were Paul's. And you are exchanging uh, greetings and handshakes and high fives like nothing. That's what is going on here. Uh, Samuel is treating Saul as an equal. The second thing is that uh, the mention of, uh, from Samuel's mouth that he is going to disclose everything that is in his heart. Uh, our ESV translates it that as everything that is on your mind. And yet the Hebrew is everything that is in your heart. See, this is intriguing. This is very interesting. Uh, it's not the donkeys that were concerning Saul. In fact, it seems that he never cared about the donkeys. How do I know that? Well, because Samuel affirms that the donkeys have been found. And clearly, that is not what has been occupying Saul's mind. If the donkeys were occupying Saul's mind, if caring for them, finding them, was the most important thing for Saul, then he will be listening what happened to them, not at this moment, but on the next day, as Saul is promising, as Samuel is promising. No, there is something else going on in his heart, something that his uh, heart has been trapped by, has captured his entire attention. And that is intriguing. What is it? And are you ready for it? Because it's hinted in the text already for us, and that is, he has a desire for power a desire to have more, a desire to be more, more than what he already is. And that's a lot because we have heard that he comes from a very powerful family, from a very famous father. Now, let me be clear here. 
It's not wrong for us, congregation, to want to improve our lives. And it's not wrong from us to want to care for our families and take opportunities and, and, and provide for them better. It is not wrong to seek to find a good career and so on. The problem is, rather, and this is what is happening with Saul, that he is trying to seek all of those things aside from the Lord. The problem is to seek anything aside from Jesus Christ and him being the first one in your lives. And as I said, that's what is happening here with Saul. All that is desirable in Israel has been entrapping Saul's heart. That's what he's burning for, so to speak. But he has not desired the most desirable person of all, and that is the Lord himself. Holding on to God, firmly fixing our eyes in him, that goes first. And then, then everything else. And Saul, he has not done that. And he understands that, by the way. He knows it very, very well. Listen to his answer. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? It is the last question specifically that tells us that Saul got it. He understood the message. He is destined for something big. And he knew it. He sensed it already. But his response shows false humility. Yes, false humility, congregation, because we have been told already in the text itself that he comes from a very rich, very famous family, from a powerful father. Now, it is very possible, congregation, that you desire something with all of your heart, yet at the same time, you don't want the hard work required for it. Or the responsibilities that that will bring into your life. So we want to be excellent in the sports, but we don't want the hard work for it. Or excellent musicians without the pain in our fingers or in our legs or all the practice that that requires. And so this creates this dual attitude in us. We want it, but not really. We want it right now, but without the pain. We want it, but we don't want it next day. And that is the kind of attitude that we are seeing here right now from Saul and that we will see in the rest of the book, really. He really, really desires Israel. He wants prestige. He wants the power. But he doesn't want the responsibility that that position brings with it. Attitude that we will see again throughout the book. But the interesting thing is that Samuel has no response for it. Did you realize of that? He doesn't reply anything to him. Instead of that, he continues upgrading Saul's experience. And I'm going to just highlight some parts of what we see next, uh, verses 22 and 24. Samuel brought them, brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is said before you, eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed. First, what we see here is more honor, as I said, given to Saul. He is to sit with the most important people in the whole city, and that honor is granted to him by the prophet himself. So, ha, uh, excuse me, Saul has passed from being a simple uh, traveler, a simple peasant, to becoming the center of attention of the whole town of the whole place. 
Uh, second, salt is provided with the most important part of the meal. Uh, this is a great honor reserved only for the priests. But now, he is receiving this special part for himself, meaning that salt is not only special, but he's extra special. If you ever felt special, can you imagine feeling extra special? Everything is going around you. He's being upgraded to a seven-star hotel kind of thing. Third, and most importantly, all of this is happening in the context of a sacrifice, in the context of a religious festival. And that idea, that is very key. This is not a simple meal. This is not a simple festival. It's a religious meal where God himself is present through the prophet and is granting these amazing honors to Saul, the future king. It's a meal loaded with spiritual significance. So Saul seems to be experiencing this initiation for himself, initiation for the monarchy in Israel as well. God is there, the prophet is there, and the representative people of Israel are there, showing, witnessing how Saul is receiving this special call from God himself, this special portion kept for him for this hour. And we cannot avoid but think that this special portion is nothing else but Israel him, itself. In, in other words, this action is symbolic of Saul's future coronation. But wherever, whether everyone knows that is not certain. We certainly know Saul, Samuel, uh, Samuel knows, but whether the guests know, whether Saul himself knows, whether the servant knows, that is not clear at this point. Now, there is another side to this as well, and that is God's goodness. God's goodness. Uh, Saul has been chosen to, this, to the task, but before he even gets coronated, before he even gets to the task and the office of kingship, the Lord encourages Saul by showing him his goodness through this amazing meal, through this amazing treatment. And isn't that our experience as well, congregation? Isn't it true that all the times through our lives, we, ca we can and we have experienced God's goodness in our lives? From beginning to the end, the Lord is always bringing these little uh, things in our lives. Here and there are small things, sometimes big things, to which, uh, we can be, through which we can be reminded of and encouraged through the Christian walk. Sometimes those good things help us to keep up the walk, don't they? They become tokens. So we can look back as we go through tribulations and sufferings in times of sorrow. So we can look back and say, oh, that's right. I have a good God who has taken care of me. And I know he will take care of me in the future as well. Now, if we are going to consider Saul, what can we say about him? So far, we can say that he is an ambivalent character. He seems to be far away from God, and yet God has chosen him to this special task. Also, we have seen Saul's secret desires and ambitions, but we don't know how they will play out in the story yet. So all in all, this doesn't look like a bad picture, does it? But the question is, is it perfect? Is it final? Is it enough? Let me put it this way. Will you trust your life to Saul? Will you trust your life to Saul? 
See, in that sense, uh, Saul is a very, very good mirror of who we are. Isn't it true that during our lives there was a moment where we were oblivious away from God? We ignored God and the things of God, far away, alienated from Him, and we walked in this world searching after things that will never satisfy our hearts. And knowing that, we know also that we need another one, that someone like Saul is just like us, and that cannot be good. We don't need souls. We don't need a savior like us. We need someone better. And that someone better, as you know, is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, boys and girls, is that sweet savior who knows God and who knows his works perfectly. And knowing God, he also knew something very important, that God, he loves you. He loves you and he loved you through eternity. And it's because that love of God the Son of God became human, so he can die for you. See, it's because of Jesus and because he's knowing the Father perfectly that he offered himself as our substitute so he can obtain our salvation, so he can perish in our place. And during his whole life, his whole task was to carry out the will of the Father. He, Jesus, was never oblivious, never away from the Father. And here's the thing, when we abandon ourselves to Jesus, we discover truly and really that he is the only one who can complete us, who can feel our longings, who can make us alive again. In Jesus, that walk, that walk for meaning, for completeness, for, for um, being loved, our ambitions, the secret desires of our hearts, that we will long for, all of those are satisfied. It is in Jesus, in fact, that we get the privilege to receive something better than Saul's meal here in the text. We receive a meal prepared for us by the hands of the Father through the action of uh, Jesus Christ in the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that is the sacrament of the Lord's table that we have in front of us this morning. Isn't this a table in which we commune, celebrate with the Father in the Son and through the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus, we receive abundant blessings indeed. Now let us continue and, and, and let us look at the second part, a secret conversation with the prophet. Look at verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Um, actually, the uh, Septuagint uh, is the rendition that we are reading here in the ESV. Uh, the Masoretic, the Hebrew text, has, and he talked to the prophet in the secret. Um, whether that is the case or not, it doesn't matter because it's not reported to us what they talk. What is important here is uh, that the um, Septuagint seems to be reflecting the fact that Saul is ending his journey. This is it. This is where everything ends. This is where Saul culminates his first mission. And as, as I mentioned last week, this is the first time that we actually see Saul sleeping, ending his whole day. So it seems uh, that the end of his journey has come to a close. See, he was not looking for the donkeys for three days. It was just one day 
And this is the end of that first day of a search. And as you know, he's no longer looking for the donkeys because they have been found. So he doesn't care for them anymore. And over all of that, Saul has been highly honored. His belly is full, uh, is full excuse me. He has been satisfied. So finally he can rest. Finally, he can uh, sleep at peace, knowing that a message is awaiting for him next day. Now, the flow of the, the, flow of the narrat narrative becomes more and more interesting. Listen how this continues. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. Here is what is interesting behind these, uh, this verse. Very, very early in the morning, when no one in the city is going to see them, when everyone is still in their beds, Samuel has called Saul. So they can exit the city without being detected. Yet isn't that kind of weird? If Saul is going to be king over Israel, doesn't it make sense to parade Saul through the center of the city? To, to call the heads of the tribes of Israel and proclaim Saul king right here and right now? I mean, this is the perfect opportunity. The prophet, the future king, the city, the people, all of them are there. But see, here starts what I have called the secret king narrative. As far as I know, no one else has called it like that. So if you want to complain about the name, we will talk later on. But as far as I know, no one has called this the secret king narrative. But, but the name explains why Saul is given the privileges that he is given, but he's not openly proclaimed king. He's given a great promise in riddles, uh, but it's not for the ears of everyone. It seems then that Saul will not slide into the office smoothly and without every pro any problems or tests. And it doesn't seem like everyone will obey him immediately. That will become important later on. But rather, it seems that Saul will have to start ascending to the position of king, uh, growing into that, so to speak, uh, um, making it his position to earn, so to speak. And it makes sense, does it not? The organic motive of God's will over our lives has to match all the time the organic development in our lives itself, in history. And imposing sovereigns over people, imposing people over the people has never, never worked in the past. That's not how God works and is not how will, will work in Israel either. God has called Saul. God has encouraged Saul and he will see uh, that, God, that Saul is ordained as king. But from calling Saul to Saul sitting on the throne, there is a huge gap that has to be filled. Saul has to demonstrate with actions in history that he is indeed a man worth following, that he is indeed a man after God's heart. The secret nature of the kingship, by the way, does not stop with Saul. Uh, if you remember, it is exemplified in the Gospels all the time by Jesus Christ. His messianic nature is all the time veiled from unbelievers. Jesus heals someone, and what does he say? Don't tell anyone. Have you wondered why? Because Jesus' mission does not consist in making himself 
famous, but it consists in submission to the Father's will, in humiliation, and finally, in death. And all of that before victory and his glorification. And after Jesus, this continues even now. Every believer congregation is a prophet, is a priest, and is a king, molded after the image of Jesus Christ. Yet they prove their calling as Christians precisely as they discharge their office in every area of life, as they follow Jesus Christ all over the, over, all over the place. Excuse me. Christians, in other words, serve one another as priests. Christians encourage one another with God's word as prophets. And Christians examine one another and our walk so we may walk blamelessly in this life. That is how we demonstrate the, the, call, the calling that God has given us to this world here and now. Now, uh, going back to the text, look at verse 27 and 10, 1. Tell the servant to pass on before us. Stop here yourself for a while. Samuel took a flask of oil and put it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So briefly, just notice how these verses confirm what we just have said already. Not even the servant of Saul is to be present when he is anointed as king over the people of Israel. Moreover, it seems that from now on, it is Saul who will start to walk towards getting the upgrade, uh, that of becoming king. And also from now on, it is Saul who needs to show himself resourceful, show care for the flock of Israel, and to be innovating in the way in which he leads God's people. The process of anointing, anointing is in many respects a new one, um, because normally anointing with oil was reserved to the priests and to the high priest, but this time it's starting to be used to reach the office of a king. However, notice again, the word king is not used here. Rather, the word prince is used here. The difference really is one of degree. A prince is one who has not the total control over the people. Saul has to remember that this is still God's people that he's going to care for. And this is, by the way, a good reminder for us, congregation. We find ourselves surrounded right now by God's people. We are his redeemed, and we should be careful with the way we speak to and about each other. In the end, every sin committed against one of God's properties, in this case, God's people, is committed against God himself. And may, may that be a lesson for us to learn, uh, congregation, so we can talk graciously to one another, and so we can be merciful towards one another. Disagreements, and you know that, those will abound. Differences, like no one business, but all the time, may we learn to treat each other with respect, taking the other as superior to us, as the Apostle Paul reminds us. Now, the mission of Saul is once again repeated. He is to bring deliverance from surrounding enemies. And once again, you can already tell that the mission of Saul is not all exhaustive at all. Will God's people become beacons of light to the nations with Saul? Will God reach those nations through the ministry of Saul? Will the Gentiles come to the Lord because of Saul's efforts? All of those questions here are answered with the negative. 
so clearly Saul has a career in front of him, but it's not the final career to put all other careers and efforts uh, to an end. It seems uh, that Saul's task is transitory, not final. And when we see that, we learn that Saul really was not the one that we are waiting for. Just as no politician can bring an end to all of your sufferings, all our sorrows, and all of your needs, in the same way, Saul couldn't do that for Israel. But Saul's career marks already the trajectory that redemptive history will take. The history of Israel will become so closely tangled with the history of the king that in Israel, as the king goes, so the nation will follow. And that will continue until the coming of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Jesus, in the final analysis, is the one who comes to bring to an end the curse. Uh, it is in Jesus that we become beacons of light of the world. And, and, and uh, excuse me, beacons of light to the world. And it's Jesus who opens this path of salvation to Jews and to Gentiles. The nations flock to him. And in him were made a new race, a chosen one, than one, than one that belongs to God. Have you been forgetting, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, that we belong to Jesus? Have you been pursuing the secret things of your heart? The things that we think will make us happy? And yet they won't. And yet all the time, have you found that happiness, happiness eludes you, runs away from you? That the satisfaction that those things bring is brief and quickly? If that has been the case, then let me offer you what the text is offering us this morning. Let me offer you King Jesus Christ. He has conquered the world in our, in our place. He has obeyed the Father and defeated the devil. And he is the one, he's the only one who can fill our hearts and truly satisfy us. And what is my desire for you this morning? My desire for you this morning is that we may learn to follow the King, the true King, and that we may do so forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this text, for reminding us once again uh, that in our hearts there are many secret things that we many times desire to follow. And yet, Lord, as we try to follow them and as we try to uh, find happiness in them, we discover once and again that none of those uh, fill us and none of those make us happy. So we pray, Lord, that you may help us to look to Christ, that you may um, lift up our eyes to you, and in seeing Jesus Christ, in seeing what you have provided for us, we may be uh, replenished by his love and reminded of his forgiveness. Uh, thank you, Lord, for that, and thank you for your word. Help us now to walk as your ministers in this world, as we bring about um, glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.